Welcome to the Plexus Education Leadership Podcast Series. Today, we have Dr. Jared Cleveland, Superintendent of Springdale Schools in Springdale, Arkansas, as our guest. Dr. Cleveland is a native of Arkansas and a lifetime educator and administrator. You'll enjoy this one. Welcome, everyone, to the Plexus Education Leadership Podcast. I'm David Lindivers, the Vice President of Plexus, and I'm very happy today to have our special guest, Dr. Jared Cleveland from the Springdale Schools in Arkansas, uh, Northwest Arkansas. Is that correct, Jared? All right. Yeah. We're in Springdale. We are in the middle of Fayetteville, Rogers, and Benville. We're the right smack in the middle, and we've got, we can see the university at night. We can see a Walmart on every corner. <laughs> Trucks that drive by say J.B. Hunt. So we've got some pretty quality folks, and they're pulling Tyson uh, <laughs> Tyson products. We've oh, got some awesome. great folks right here. I've heard some of the other superintendents I've talked to, uh, Skipper Ward and a few others, they're like, hey, that's the land of milk and honey up there. It's what people say. What's well, a big lie. I know Skipper <laughs> really well, and I, I love him like a brother, but you know, it's 72% free and reduced lunch for our district of 23,000. Right. I don't know if that qualifies as the land of milk and honey. I think there are some haves and some have-nots, and, yeah. and uh, disparity certainly is everywhere. But I do understand that Northwest Arkansas has a little different view. Depends on where you're sitting as far as your lens. Right. But it's interesting. I've heard that, too. <laughs> now, are you from Arkansas? Is that your background, born and raised? I'm an Arkansas boy. I came from the River Valley, was born, actually born in, in Blyville, Arkansas, which is the other side of the state. Okay. So when my dad got out of the military and my mom was a, a young teacher. He to law school and we were stationed out there. That's, I say stationed. He found his first uh, practice with a gentleman named Mitchell Moore in Osceola. Oh, yeah. And so we lived there for a few years before he and my mother decided to move back to what their home was, was the Paris Magazine River Valley area. That's between Fort Smith and Russellville, basically. Okay. Okay. My grandparents were on my dad's side. were both in the, uh, one was a barber, one was a beautician. And they picked cotton and watermelons and all that to try to get through school. And my other grandmother on my mom's side, she raised two young girls. Uh, her husband died when she was 36 and, uh, he was the county clerk and had been to Korea and had TB and all of those things back in the day that none of us even think about today. That's true. She raised two girls by herself and held down three jobs. So toughest lady I've ever known in my life. That's amazing. Yeah, I, I love hearing about the stories of, of grandparents and those people that kind of help us be who we are today. And that history, you remember, wow, they did work hard. You know, the convenience we have today, those things weren't there. You talk yeah. about doing laundry back in the day. It was a whole nother heck of a, a chore. Yeah. And my grandmother on my dad's side, her name was Vestal. She grew up cleaning houses and working on the family farm and trying to go to school. She was a, a sibling she, of 12. Wow. Wow. And my yes. grandfather had 11 siblings. So <laughs> it was a day they went through the depression. They had in order to eat, they had to grow it. And uh, it's just a different kind of day. Yeah, it's true. My my wife's family's from Canada and three brothers and three sisters all got married from the same families, like same three brothers, same three sisters. And they all got married and they lived in the oh, farming wow. communities in Alberta and Saskatchewan. 
And that's just what you did, right? I mean, you lived there, you have small towns and just amazing communities. And uh, her, her family primarily, I mean, they've been pastors and stuff for years in Canada. So it's a pretty cool story that just alone. Oh, absolutely. So, and so you, so um, did you do all of your schooling in Arkansas? Were you yes. in the military, that kind of stuff too? What did you No, I, I didn't. Um, I, I sure didn't. My, uh, I had an older brother graduate high school in 87 and he was going to go to the air force academy I was accepted the whole bit when he did his final, whatever, uh, he didn't pass physical and mm-hmm. he fallen out of the back of a truck and had a little uh, brain bleed. And that kept him from, from going. And he should have been out there in June. He got killed in a car wreck at home in July. Oh, so geez. my dad was not too happy with the Air Force Academy because he said, you know, had they taken him like he was supposed to get to go, he'd still be alive today. Mm. And, uh, you know, that's a sad deal. But so, no, I didn't go to the military. My parents threatened me a few times that I <laughs> had to go. And I think I think if there was a military school for high school that would straighten people out, I would have been gone. So <laughs> I really believe that. My mother threatened me a time or two. I wasn't terrible, but I certainly didn't live up to the expectation that my brother set. You know, he had, he had a 35 on his ACT, handsome as he could be, athletic, the whole bit. And that's kind of tough. You know, I, I had a double cleft lip and it was kind of funny looking all through school. And I tell you, I didn't really become anybody as far as have any kind of confidence until someone put a basketball in my hand and I found out I was pretty good. Mm. It's funny when you're an athlete and people need you to win, they don't really want to offend you, call you names and things like that, unless they're your really good friend. Yes, and really good point. friends are pretty hard on each other. But no, I, I, uh, I've been very blessed. And I like that. Certainly without, without the influence of the people that were around me during that time, because uh, that two years, I was a sophomore going to be a junior. And so the basketball team, basketball coach, that school community, if it wasn't for them, there's no telling where I would be because my parents at the time were, I don't want to say they were lost, but imagine losing one of yours. It takes your breath. It, it, oh, uh, boy. Oh, no, it man. just, it's one of those things that it's your worst nightmare, worst fear. And yeah. they were working through that and, and having to raise another son who looked like him, talked like him, sound like him, all that. Pretty constant reminder, and so I just uh, I focused on my extracurricular activities. School wasn't a big deal to me; I didn't really care about it. I went to school to play basketball, and it's funny. Uh, I knew that I wasn't as smart as my brother. I could never attain those kind of academic achievements, and yet here I sit today, today with a doctorate degree. <laughs> That's true. God's plans better than our own. That's true. Did would you want Trent Jones to join us? I know he's he's. I don't know where he is, but he certainly can. Yeah, he's. I'll admit him right now. He's. In We're there. having an industry day. Oh, I like it. So. Okay. You know when you you talk about the extracurriculars and then you end up with a doctorate. I think there's many students who probably feel very similar to you in the midst of where do I go? What do I do? I, I people are smarter than me. Yet you work hard to get to where you are. And I know when, before we started recording, you had said there's an interesting story about your doctorate dissertation on the development process of self-sustainable school-based health center for a school district in Western Arkansas. 
Like, I love to read doctorates of those who I, who I get the opportunity like you and, and really the honor to talk to and get to know. Because it, first of all, the, the study and the engagement and the amount of effort and energy to get the doctorate is incredible. It's not a simple process. And it challenges no. us to grow as people in ways we never thought possible and ways we really didn't want to grow, but sometimes you do. So tell us that story. Okay. I'm happy to. I, I never really intended to even be an administrator. I uh, was going to go to law school, like I told you. And then my wife was a teacher and the short and dirty of that story is that um, I changed my mind and did something different. And I had played basketball in college for a short stint and a superintendent where my wife worked called and said, Hey, got a head basketball job, job open. Mm-hmm. Don't know if you can do it or not, but I think you should have, you should apply. Okay. So uh, I didn't think that was really a good thing. I, you know, but anyway, I did and got it. And uh, for eight years, we're pretty successful. I was the head basketball coach at magazine Arkansas. And, and uh, the only way I knew I could make any more money is to add a degree. And so I went through Harding university because they had Saturday classes and summer classes that I could take because being a head basketball coach and doing the other uh, sports there, it took all of my time, both the night and day. And most of the only time that I had uh, was on weekend or in the summer in that little window of time when you, you got a break. So I got my master's degree and in August of, of that year, our principal just left. I mean, we didn't, he went to Alaska actually. And the superintendent called me up and said, Hey, you want to, he said, do you want to be principal? <laughs> You're going to coach and everything. We can save a little money. And I said, I, I don't know that I can do all that coaching. And anyway, wound up working out fine. And uh, by the remainder of that year, the board and superintendent separated. And I said, Hey, Jared, you want to be superintendent? And I think I was 30. You know, I was pretty young, 31 maybe. And I said, well, okay, I'll do it until you can find somebody. Right. And it wound up that it was a pretty good fit for me. And uh, I started to learn and finished my specialist degree in order to remain the superintendent because you needed a license to do so. That's right. Stayed there a couple of years and uh, never thought I would ever leave that small district who I knew everyone. They knew every me, uh, every, they knew me and we were a, a great family. If someone hurt, we all hurt. You know, if a house burned, we were all showed up. I mean, it was one of those kinds of communities. Just a beautiful place that everyone cared. But um, I met a gentleman, president of the board of another community called Lavaca, at a school oh, board yeah. association meeting. And we struck up a friendship, and that's all I thought it was. And uh, one day they lost their superintendent, and he called me. Late at night, I'll never forget, I was laying on the couch watching TV. We had just had our third child like a few days before. Uh, it was March, I guess, and I'll say a few days. He was born in February, late February. And he called and he said, hey, Jared, uh, John's going to another district. Do you know anybody that might be interested in this job? And being as naive as I was, I said, no, but I'll think about it. <laughs> People who, you know, might be really good and. And I could tell he was laughing a little bit. And at the very end, he said, okay, now, Jared, I know you're not dumb. I said, well, no, sir, I'm not. He said, I called to see if you're interested. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, no, sir, I, I I don't think I could do it. It was a much bigger district. I don't think I'm qualified to do that. I've 
barely even gotten started. I don't know what I don't know even. And the people in the magazine are helping me be a superintendent and I'm trying to do it. And he said, well, just come talk to us. So I said, okay. Uh, and so a week or two later, I went over and talked. I thought it was just going to be him right. and the whole board. And they offered me the job right then. And uh, I just felt led to do that. And so we moved our family over there. And I found that the community wasn't like the community I, I left. And uh, there were some issues, uh, sure. significant issues early. Facilities were in disrepair. Um, mm-hmm. The superintendent that had been there before, I mean, there were some good superintendents, but they were too poor as a community to have money to do some things on their own. Gotcha. And they were too rich as far as the, the state viewed it to get poverty money. So there was a what we called NSL funds back then, which was $500 to $1,000 per kid extra. And we just couldn't do it. And so we had to go through a millage campaign. We rebuilt the high school, middle school, elementary school, uh, redid all the athletic complexes and, and all of that. But <clears throat> I found that poverty was still there. We were a bedroom community to Fort Smith. I don't know if you're familiar with the area. Yeah. yeah. Right on the Arkansas River and simply a bedroom community. No pharmacy, no health care of any kind. I mean, it was just oh, one of those interesting. things. And our kids. So it's literally, like you said, a bedroom community. People just left to do everything. Yes, that was so, it. So they the businesses a, weren't reinvesting their money in town. Ta- oh, interesting. No, they had a small town telephone company, really good one, provided good quality internet and that kind of thing. But I mean, you had a really good church, but the church folks weren't all from Lavaca. They came from the region. It was a great, big, huge Baptist church, really awesome place to be. Yeah. But they liked what they liked, which was not much. You know, they wanted to be able to go home and it'd be quiet. Right, right. Primarily anyway. But many of our kids who were poor, really impoverished, didn't have access to any kind of medical care. I mean, just hmm. nothing. Um, and it had been on my mind since I was at Magazine because Magazine was extremely poor. And we were all so poor, we didn't know we were poor. Does that make any sense? Yes, it does. You know, when I said that if there was a fire or whatever, people just showed up, most giving people I've ever met in my life. And I thought everyone was like that. Anyway, um, as a superintendent, I was not just the superintendent. I was probably the lead disciplinarian for the difficult situations, especially a magazine and relatively trusted by parents. And there was a little boy there one day who got in some trouble and, um, he had never been to the dentist and never been to uh, the doctor really only for significant issues. And oh, yeah. he got in a little trouble. And the quick and dirty of this story is that he was going to receive corporal punishment. Now this was a long time ago. He was going to get his little tail paddled and, and he didn't want that. And he came to me and he said, if somebody's going to paddle me, I'd rather it be you. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> what his dad said too. And, uh, he said, but before you do, please don't hit me on my left side. I'm like, okay, why? Well, the principal and other people were in the office, and the little kid started to pull down his pants. I'm like, oh, Carrie, don't do that. Yeah. And he did. He showed me he had a huge sore on his rear end. Oh, and it had poor little guy. more on his hip, upper hip. Yeah. I, I shouldn't say he pulled down his pants. He just did enough to show me. And I realized 
that he had a staph infection of some sort. So I called my uncle, mm. who was the head of adolescent medicine at Children's Hospital in Little Rock, my dad's brother. Okay. And he hooked us up with a doctor in a local area, and we just took him. And, uh, you know, we all gathered up whatever it was. And I don't even think they sent us a bill. They just took care of it. And right. I don't know if my uncle did it or my parents. I mean, I just don't know who did it. But we took care of Carrie. And on the way back home, I stopped uh, at my grandfather's barbershop and he got a haircut and we got him some clothes and we just took care of Carrie. And I thought, you know, it is so difficult that our kids, just because of a zip code or because of their parents' inability to make money or maybe didn't even want to or whatever, that dad had been in prison and all that, that they're subjected to things that my kids would never be subjected to because I, as a parent, I'm going to meet my obligation. Right, right. Um, anyway, so that was in magazine. At Lavaca, we had similar issues. There were some poverty folks. And so one evening, uh, it was over Thanksgiving, my uncle and his family were at my dad's. And my, of course, my dad was there and uh, my sisters and I and my family were all there and And we were talking about the difficulties of rural Arkansas and the experiences he was having in Little Rock, the children's hospital and moonlighting at Baptist in the yard where moms would come in with their kids on an ambulance with a newborn only needing Motrin or Tylenol or whatever to take a fever away from a child. And yet that that ambulance ride was two, three, four thousand dollars. The ER visit was a couple of thousand because they're taking time away from people with real significant issues. And he was talking to my dad about, we need to fix this. And the reason why he was talking to my dad is my dad at the time was in the Arkansas legislature and was actually speaker of the house. And um, the governor at the time was Mike Huckabee. And uh, Mike Huckabee was interested in, in putting trauma centers in particular portions of the state. Right, right. It's gotten a windfall of dollars from the tobacco excise tax that uh, came forward from uh, really a lawsuit nationally about tobacco killing people, right? So Arkansas, even though it wasn't much money overall, it was a lot for Arkansas because we're a poor state. Well, they wanted to use these tobacco dollars to put in. If this is too long a story, just let me know. But No, this is great. I love this. Okay. And this is really how it all began. Uh, the tobacco excise money, it seemed like seven portions of the state shouldn't get all the money. And so Governor Huckabee and my dad and some others, Huckabee did a good job as far as creating our kids first and some other, I mean, he, he did a good job. I couldn't, I can't complain about him at all, but there was a little bit of a, a tiff about what money should go where. And so they came to an agreement basically that, that uh, we could have a grant program for schools to have what we call uh, health centers, community health centers. And basically, okay. Okay. the school would be a one-stop shop, but it they just wanted nurses. At the time, we didn't even have money for nurses in schools. Wow. Only a few schools in the state could afford to have a nurse. In fact, the wow. law said that you had to employ a nurse if money allowed. So I don't know where you so want to. So if it doesn't allow, then you don't do it. Yeah. And so it's a judgment call. Yep. So the idea was to try to get a real RN in the school. And so uh, Lavaca, I applied for the grant. And uh, I thought, you know, I had a nurse 
but I was trying to think bigger. And uh, so I did. You remember that little boy. You remember the boy, didn't you? You were like every time, every time. And I thought, you know, our our kids who can have access to healthcare will get it. Yeah. Our kids who can't won't, and that's not okay with me. And uh, so what we did, just a quick story of it, is there was a gentleman who was a doctor in town, Lavaca, but he was working at Mercy Hospital and good doctor, and he was more toward the end of his career than he was toward the front. Mm-hmm. And he took a chance with me and we created a medical facility in one of the rooms of the middle school. And we put an outdoor exit and uh, had it for the community. And over time, we added a dentist three days a week. We had an optometrist from children's hospital once a month. Wow. And we were a, not, a one-stop shop. And as I was leaving to go to the state as assistant commissioner, uh, a pharmacy right next door all of a sudden shows up to serve all of the, the kids in the community. So that pharmacy still raging strong and the community stronger for it. In fact, we had a significant influx of students there. Partly I, I attribute it to having that uh, wellness center on campus, but yeah. we did other things. I mean, we did mental health, physical health, right. all you could do. I was experiencing kids going to Fort Smith and missing a whole day of school for a dentist appointment or a doctor's appointment. This way, moms and dads didn't have to leave work. They could agree to having Dr. Sanders uh, be uh, their primary care. I'll tell you, there was a lot of pushback. We were the first one in the state. A lot of pushback uh, from the pediatricians in the region because they felt like we would be taking their kids. And I went and I pulled them all together, had the superintendent of Fort Smith help me do that. And we talked and I said, hey, look, you know, we're 50 percent free reduced lunch. Many of my kids don't have access at all. We're not even going to be asking to serve your, your children. Right. In fact, if a child needs to be served, we'll ask for, if it's one of yours, we'll ask for uh, a recommendation from you or approval from you to serve there on campus. They'll still remain your, your, uh, your patient. And they, were, they agreed. And so over time, this, this little community clinic, which is still healthy and strong today, Dr. Sanders has since retired, but a uh, group came in and purchased that clinic and they're running it really, really well. And it's made the clinic uh, a part of the fabric of the school. So I always say that a school district is the heartbeat of the community. And I've watched over my time of my almost 30 years of being in education, school districts get wiped wiped off the map because they're too small. You know, that 350 number came in and there was consolidation. Uh, Governor Huckby did that. And mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and I can understand from a physical perspective why that might happen. But when you start looking at these rural schools that had uh, the heartbeat of that community, now the communities are gone. And they're just gone. That's a good point. That's School really goes away, the community goes away. And uh, I didn't want that to happen to Magazine. And so I gave them our grant and they wrote it and they got a school-based health center too. And and it just started blowing up across the, the state. And now in Springdale, uh, we're going to work. I guess we're truly, we have six now. We've got 31 schools and we've got six school-based health centers, but we're morphing into more than just the brick and mortar with an APN uh, there. 
Right, right. And general offices and all that. We are pushing into telehealth. One good thing COVID did. I like that. It opened Medicaid's eyes to say, hey, look, we can get quick access to people without them having to see a doctor. They can still see them. But if it's marginal and not too bad, and they don't have to come in and you can get it done. It's going to it's going to be cheaper in the long run to do that. And so so we're pushing telehealth in our schools and trying to have a telehealth uh, connection in each of the nurses offices. So we partner with Community Clinic and Mercy Health up here. And uh, I, I think it's a opportunity to really expand because 72 percent free reduced lunch, sir, is that's big. I mean, there are lots of kids with no access, even in a region with all kinds of access. Yeah. So anyway, that's the story of the, the, the school-based health centers. And I'm a big proponent because if you're hungry, if you're sick, uh, if you're hurt, you're not ready to learn. So oh, what, yeah, how could you do those it? Barriers, yeah. If we can smooth those barriers and try to give a level playing field for all kids, then, yeah. then uh, kids are going to have an opportunity to have the same kind of quality of life and education that yours do and that mine have. Oh, that's very true. And as parents, we worry about our children. The less we worry about our children being healthy, we can contribute differently as well. Work, we can go yeah. to work, we can contribute, we can be there. It really is a symbiotic relationship, isn't it? Well, kids kids are hard anyway to raise. They're all different. I've got three boys and then I can tell you, my wife and I are only as happy as our least happy child. That's so true. It just seems to kind of run that way. And in in a school district, whether it's public, private, charter, whatever, the moms and dads that bring those kids to us, that's the best they have. Right. They they need, they want an education, they value an education, and they may not be able to provide it for themselves to their child. And so they bring them to experts and we need to treat them as if they're our own. And so that's our focus in Springdale. That, like uh, that not every child gets the same education. That's that's equality. And that's not how that works. We, we want to give an equitable education to every child. That means everyone reaches their full potential, you know, and we're going to remove those barriers uh, that really equality because <laughs> you can you can treat everybody equally bad. Does that make sense? <laughs> oh, yeah, very bad, so. That's equal. Yeah. But that's not OK. That's not what we do. Right. So we want to reduce those barriers for every child that meets their full potential, whether it's special ed, through medically fragile, through national merit finalist. I mean, we we want to roll it out. And uh, that's what we think we're doing. You're right, because you have everything in between. Like you said, you have such a variety of kids and families mm-hmm. and, and people there. You, you said something about what you do with the doctors in Fort Smith by getting them together to have that conversation and, and one of the things I've learned from the superintendents I've had the honor to talk to over the past few months is getting the community together to talk is just a hallmark to whether people want to contribute or not. And do you find that true in Springdale as well, that you're able to bring people together to talk about things and have those difficult discussions? Well, we, we do. Uh, <clears throat> you know, people work so hard that yeah. sometimes it's hard to get them engaged. And, and in Springdale in Northwest Arkansas, we have a variety of, of different ethnic, ethnicities that speak different languages. And I think, I think in Springdale alone, we're almost 60 home languages spoken in our district. Um, so having moms and dads that can really communicate back and forth, it's tough. And so like we have our family, uh, family literacy program where moms and dads that don't know our language, the English language can come to school and learn English at the same time their kids are, which is pretty cool. But yes, we provide 
a lot of opportunities to get feedback from our community. You know, people call them stakeholders. Some, that's just kind of a big word for yeah. <laughs> moms and dads and people who care about the school. Yeah. But we have what we call our patron shelf, and we meet pretty much once a month to once a quarter. COVID's really impacted some of that communication. But uh, I prefer face-to-face. Yeah. But what we've learned is we get more activity and more uh, people who plug in with providing Zoom links and having almost like a uh, well, a town hall of people mm-hmm. from all over. We get at least two or three from every school, like I say, 31. And if they can plug in, they can. If they don't that month, they don't have to. But we ask for feedback. We don't just have an open agenda where it's a complaint session. We talk about the big nuggets that we're working on right now and our goals for next year or next month and ask what they'd like to see and what issues are, are barriers to their own children's learning. And um, like one of our big topics last time was we had a huge bus driver shortage. Uh, mm. And mm. you know, we've been having about 112 to 115 bus routes. And this year we have 58 so we had to really create a new system, which impacted the whole community yeah, because yeah. of having pretty much door-to-door service, we had to establish bus stops, right? And moms and dads would have to either have their kids walk or they'd bring them to them and because uh, our folks work. And sometimes the kids are having to get up and get dressed on their own and go to the bus stop. And so That's true. they help be our eyes and ears about, you know, we, we can create on a map a good bus stop, but... If moms and dads live around there and there are no sidewalks or there's a blind curve or whatever, they were our eyes and ears about what a safe bus stop should be and where it could be located. And at first, when we started talking to them, it was just complaints. You know, they want to go on the news and this is terrible. But now when we've said, oh, thank you, we don't want any unsafe places. Please help us find the appropriate place. It, it became a partnership. And it wasn't one of these, let's defend our view as a parent of this is such a bad thing on TV, you know, because I like to call the news. And we didn't want to have to go and defend ourselves on the TV. So we've just said, we need your help. And oh, by the way, any of you interested in driving a bus? <laughs> we've, we've, we've actually gotten some grandfathers and grandmothers who've said, look, I, I'll, I want to heed the call. Absolutely. Will you help me get my license? I'll do it. And so the average age of our bus drivers has gone up. but uh, the quality of care and the driver has gone up too, because now we have people who actually have kids in our district that want to be here and they want to serve. True. And they felt that tug to, to be part of this family. We call it the Springdale family. So I'm, I'm tickled about that. It doesn't mean that the shortage doesn't exist anymore. Uh, what it means is we have people who care that have come together and we're just making it work. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So. You're the second superintendent I've talked to this week who's, who talked about bus driver shortage. Now they're having a tough time finding people to drive buses. Well, David, it's not just bus drivers. It's course, true. DOT creates a problem mm-hmm. in that, I mean, you need to be a quality driver. That's true. History. Uh, you don't need to be uh, someone who can't pass a background check. Of course, that takes a while. You yeah. need to have specialized training. It's about four to six weeks to get a CDL, and you have to do it, and you got to have a certain amount of, of seat time and all of that and practice time. So it's important that you – you don't just walk off the street and drive a bus, right? but yeah. that is a barrier. Yeah. But we have 40 something openings right now for instructional assistants, <sighs> substitutes. Yeah. 
you know, we'll have as many as 180 to 200 substitutes needed every day with 3,000 employees. Well, people don't want to sub for what we're able to pay. And COVID situation, people got paid to stay home. They did. Well, and that created what I call COVID lazy. And we're not out of that yet. In fact, so many people are frustrated about not being able to provide goods and services or, or hire people or the, the cost of the goods have gone up so much that uh, people are having to pay more. And so there's this war uh, for employees and the escalation of pay continues to go up. And the way a school district being a state agency, basically, we have a salary schedule. Yeah, and in order absolutely. to our schedule, you, you have to go through, jump through a lot of hoops and people have to vote and the whole thing. And it's just hard to do. Well, it's really hard to compete with these companies that need truck drivers that pay $100,000 a year and dump truck operators. And our great friends over at APAC, they need employees, but they're able to pay more because they can increase the cost of their goods. We can't. We have a steady stream, and we're thankful that it's steady, but our stream hasn't increased in the amount of inflation that we're being impacted with today and trying to compete with those folks for employees. I mean, so really what we do is we offer, hey, we've got a great retirement system. Yep. You get to work yep. with kids. It's a lot of fun. Um, it, we need you. We need people that have a heart for kids, and it's a great family atmosphere, the the facilities are quality, uh, and you get that good intrinsic feeling of knowing you had done something good that day. And uh, so we're able to, to get some good people. But I want to tell you. 40, you said 40 teacher assistants positions open? Yeah. I, I think the other day I did a survey for the Department of Education, and I had 46 openings just for instructional assistants, <laughs> mainly in special ed. Right. You know, because if you're in an SEC classroom, which is a small, uh, severe and profound classroom, yeah. Sometimes kids are violent. I mean, they don't they don't know what they're doing, some of them, and they don't mean to be violent. They need the help. Yep. Yeah, and it's just hard. And, and so that's tough. And with the COVID situation, a lot of our folks were a little older, maybe, or had someone in their family that was medically fragile. And we didn't know what we didn't know about the virus. And so a lot of people left education. If they could retire early, they did. And that's created a, a real need across the state. We do pay really well in Springdale, but it, it doesn't, it's not cheap to live in Northwest Arkansas. Right. So some of our folks that want to move couldn't find a place to move and, and so they couldn't come. That, that's tough. So that, you know, that is tough. That land makes it tough. Money? No, David. <laughs> there, everyone has their, their, true. and I know that. Yeah, but of course. Of course. We certainly have our warts as well and our difficulties. Is your area growing population-wise as well? Would you say? Yes. Increasing? I had a long meeting with our chamber yesterday, and there are 32 people that move into this area daily. And so I asked, I said, so how many move out? How many move out? You know, we have Walmart that's based here, and they require their vendors to, to have an office here. So that's brought a lot of people in over time. And I think that really was the, the precipice for the, our growth. Tyson Foods is an international company. And now they're moving their headquarters to just be here. They had some other headquarters. Okay. And so they're forcing all of their upper level folks to move here. And so that that's going to create, uh, you know, more people that are going to live in the area. But, you know, the hub of activity that are that's necessary to serve those companies, um, their jobs. I mean, their jobs here. Yeah. But it's expensive to live here. 
And uh, people that are looking for entry-level jobs can come and find one. I mean, if you want a job, you can find one. Right. Uh, people that don't have a job is because they don't want one and they're not looking. So, uh, yeah, we're, we're growing. But uh, as far as the student population, ours has flattened off a little bit because of so many other options, mm. market-driven. And so a lot of charter schools have come into the region. We have uh, private schools that are popping up all over the place. And I'm quite confident that uh, with this next session that's coming around, we're told that vouchers or public education dollars uh, get to go to private schools and homeschools. It's coming. And uh, so I can see even a depletion of the public school enrollment more over the next few years as that voucher program is installed. It's already here with the Succeed Scholarship. Right, right. I've heard that. Blow that up, and and it's going to be the money follows the child. I've already been told that personally. So by people that are in a position to make it happen. Yeah, I was I was talking to uh, Brooklyn School District Superintendent um, about two weeks ago, and we were he was talking about school choice and how they know they have to strive to compete with these other thing, the other um, educational entities to show the value that they have in their school district. So people want to choose it right and stay versus taking that money elsewhere. Well, can I just tell you my philosophy? It's just conversation. Like I told you, you may say, uh, (laughs) we're not going to put this one out, but um, (laughs) here's what I know. I know that the Arkansas academic standards of accreditation were developed way back when Governor Clinton was governor in 1983. They were, they were published in 1984. That was a while ago, yes. Yeah. So I brought out the 2022, actually the 2020 is the newest, and compared them and did a summer sheet. And the summer sheet is marginal, mm. meaning uh, we've gone from five and a half hours of instruction per day to six. Okay. We've gone from 20 graduation credits to 22. That's basically it. We've stretched the academic calendar uh, or at least the teacher calendar from 185 to 190 as far as a minimum contract. That's it. So, David, when we all say we're experiencing educational reform and the rules of the game haven't changed at all since 84, I'd love to share this information with you. I've got it. Um, I'm going to share it with a legislator here at noon. Yeah, so, please do. Anyway, uh, it's really crazy. That's interesting. 20 years ago, legislator legislators said, you know, public education is not getting it. We need more choice. I know that we can we can go between school. You can do board to board and we can open it up to where anybody can send their kid to any public school they want to by May yeah. 1st and all that. But they said, we need more and we need reform. Well, the reform they offered was charter schools. Now, I don't know where you stand on it. Uh, but the legislature said a charter school is a public school. So guess what? It's a public school. I mean, the law says it. And so um, now they're saying, well, charter schools, there just aren't enough of them. And, you know, you public school folks kind of beat us down and, and try to keep us out of your area. And uh, so w- let's just let the money fall to the kid, you know, which means private schools will get at least $7,500 per child for a child to go there. Now, it's been communicated that all children will have this opportunity. Okay. What about poor kids? I don't know where you live or um, where your kids go to school, but 
let's say they go to a private school, chances are the tuition is more than $7,500 a year. Chances are. Easily. My kids are all in public school, but yeah, there's private schools around us that are thirty, forty, fifty thousand dollars $50,000 a year. Sure. So when that's the case, it sounds good that all kids are eligible, but do you think poor kids that are impoverished kids that need to eat every day, that need the free and reduced lunch population, uh, that need those services like our school-based health centers, do you think the, the private schools can provide that? Now, maybe they can. I don't know. But the chances are they're not going to accept just the $7,500 to educate an impoverished child because impoverished children have more issues. Doesn't mean they're less smart. There are more difficulties in their life that they have to deal with than ones that aren't. And that's just the facts. Right. Um, I mean, you know, you've you've worked in school districts. You've come up that way. You know, firsthand experience. And it is very easy for people to talk about it, but when you have to live it and do it, it's a whole different thing. Mm-hmm. Whole different yeah. thing. You know, David, we all have our own lenses, right? Yes. So I have a lens of how something might impact or affect my family, you know, and if I'm a impoverished person that lives in the hill somewhere, like where I came from, then um, I'm going to look through my own lens of how's it going to affect me today, like a tax cut. That's right. How, how's the tax cut going to affect me? Yep. So I'll do the calculation. Well, if I make a whole lot of money, tax cuts going to be good for me, right? If I don't make any money, it doesn't matter. And if you're taking away goods and services from, from me and access to me, that doesn't help me. Right. And if you take away my school or you impact my ability to educate my child, that doesn't help me. Now, it, in my view, if they want to give whoever they are, I guess the leaders that be, a discount on private school tuition, I say just give it to them. But don't create a situation to where our haves and half-nots get wider. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Public schools, to me, they're, they're the great equalizer. Education is a great equalizer. If I didn't have my education and that desire to get one, I don't know what I'd be doing. And I very likely would have children and not providing for those children. That's a problem, you know. And, and I know moms and dads out there work. They work as hard as they can, uh, but decisions that were made years ago that are impacting today, it's kind of hard to go back and fix those. So my real worry is that uh, 14 states have this voucher system, just 14, and it's for public money to go to private schools. Well, I believe there is an effort for that to be extended or expanded in Arkansas for homeschool students to be able to access that money. Mm. Now, if you look through your lens or my lens of, okay, we have enough, you know, we're going to choose public school very likely, but what about these children whose moms and dads are having trouble with them to go to school anyway? If, you know, I call it the quiet quit. Right Right now, a lot of times if kids get in trouble or if they're not academically successful, if they're causing trouble at home, parents just raise their hands and say, I don't care. And they'll say homeschool. Well, that's a quiet quit. That's a good uh, point. Imagine. It's not easy. Yeah, it's a good point. Yeah. Imagine if I'm a mom or a dad and I'm by myself Mm -hmm. and I've got five kids, let's say, and uh, I'm under the poverty line, which is $30,000. Uh, if I had access to at least $7,500 minimum per kid to keep them at home, 
what kind of a choice am I going to make? Yeah. Let's say it's 10,000 to make it easy. Yeah. I'm under the poverty line now working with five kids and I can get 50,000 tax-free dollars to not send them to school, especially after what we learned through COVID. What kind of decision will these moms and dads across the state? And by the way, David, Arkansas is 65% free and reduced lunch for our 465,000 kids. Mm. So we are an impoverished state. Our public school kids primarily are impoverished. Now, some drive Corvettes, I'm going to tell you. I mean, there are folks that go to our public schools all over the state. Families are doing well. Right, but the right. disparity between the wealth <clears throat> and unwealthy is tremendous. Yeah. And so my worry is to deplete the public school fund in that manner would be tragic. So if you think our business and industry partners today that need workers today, they've never been, they've never been more desperate for workers that will deplete the workforce and that gap will be catastrophic. You, you know? can't even Especially measure it as a business partner, right? You're like, well, everyone was homeschooled. What did you teach them? Like, what is going on here? I don't know. I know it's incredible. It's really it's interesting to hear your perspective on that too. Kind of if you give, if I'm able to keep my kids home and get 50 grand a year, why not? Like, sure, sure. Well, if it's the difference, David, between eating and not eating yes. or providing some medical services to my kids, if, if that's important to me, or if I want to drink and do drugs all day, I mean, think about it. I mean, bad things are happening all across the state. And, and as this drug situation where people are trying to escape mentally anyway mm. becomes more prevalent, once you get on that stuff, you're, you'll do anything to get more. And I've witnessed it. And uh, that's shame, but our state could have some significant issues if we go down the road, even though it may be, it sounds good for every parent to have choice. You know, it sounds good. It sounds really good for the money to follow the child, Yeah. but at what cost? So the fundamental question is, how is it going to be implemented? What kind of guardrails will be on there? And if you say that every child has the opportunity to go to private school, there are going to be some private schools that'll say, hey, look, I don't want those kids. I don't want the special ed kids. I, I, I just don't want them. Right. Tough to say. We don't have services here, so they can't come. Or we only want college potential kids. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we, don't, we don't want. I mean, our goal is college. So of the, I don't know, 17 or 18 charter schools, their focus in this state, there are no CTE programming. So it's college bound. The private schools, all of them that I know, their focus is on college, college, college. Well, David, do you know what we do in public schools? We do all of it. Right. We have everything. Everything. We, everything. we have all of these requirements. And, in, and to get federal money, we have to meet those. And to get state money, we have to meet those. But keep in mind, when did I tell you the Arkansas academic standards were established? When did I tell you? 82. 83 and they 83, were 82, right around then. <laughs> and they're still the same today. They just layer on more accountability. Uh, so we're forced to do that and we're happy to do it. I, I really believe there is an opportunity today for us to meet our business and industry partner needs, especially in Northwest Arkansas, by improving apprenticeships and internships for our kids during the school day. Mm-hmm. But the rules of 1983, they're going to have to change. They're going to have to lighten up on us. They're going to have to give us some flexibility like the charter schools have. 
you know, truly if the charter schools and we have a conversion charter in our own district and it's called Don Tyson School of Innovation. We've had it for about seven years yeah. and it's amazing. Kids can leave with associate's degrees. Uh, we have industrial maintenance, diesel technology, all of that all over there. But our two traditional high schools, Harbor High School, which is excellent in its own right, Springdale High School, which has been a flagship in, in the state for years and years and years, they're not able to get away from some of those inhibiting rules that uh, are listed in the Arkansas Standards of Accreditation. So I'm going to ask for some flexibility, for some movement in that opportunity for us to meet our business and industry partners. And here's what I think, David. I'm a little passionate about this. I don't know if you can tell. I like it. <laughs> Well, I love, I, I want our kids to have a shot at life. Exactly. I mean, that's oh. what you're talking about. And that's yeah. what you're sharing about. And if they don't get a good education from good people with good character, yeah. what's next? So anyway, so the flexibility I'm going to ask for is let's review these standards, see which ones are needed. I call them essential, which ones are essential and which ones aren't and get them out. Right. You know, get them out and let's focus on having kids learn while doing the job. I, what have you done in your life? What did, what did you go to college to be trained for? Yeah. Yeah. What, fly what planes. That's what I did. What, what did you do? I was aviation science. I flew planes. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah. Okay. Without an education, could you have done that? No. No, no, no. So yep. my, my I had someone teach me every day how to fly. When did you learn the most? Was it reading a book, looking at a computer, or was it doing it with your hands and having to think and your yeah. life on the line kind of thing? It was the doing. I mean, when I did my MBA, I knew I was going to be in educational administration because I wasn't a you know a PhD faculty member at a university. I needed that hands-on direct experience of the MBA to apply to what I was doing. And it was absolutely applicable. And it made the degree come alive for me. I sure. loved it. Well, just let me tell you, my first year of teaching, I had the degree, I had the certificates, I had everything I needed, except I had no experience. Right. <laughs> And I look back on my work with those first year kids and I, I want to apologize to them. I mean, I, I did the best I could, but I, I'm not real sure just how quality was. Now, over time, I got better and better, but it was on the job training. Yes. And the people that were around me that invested in me to say, hey, look, Jared, hey, hey bud, let's 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 try like this tomorrow. Different. <laughs> let's don't do what you did today. And uh, anyway. You know, there's, it, it's great to hear you talking about that because I'm a huge proponent of, you know, change and effective change and looking at things that we've done that aren't working and, and let, like, let's get rid of them. Why not? And, David, to, and to hear the fact that you're passionate to make those changes to truly open up what's possible, especially with public funding for public schools. I, I love that you're talking about that. I think it's absolutely necessary. Well, here's what I think. Since we're doing it all, we're, we're producing national merits, we're producing college kids, mm -hmm. but we're, that's one piece of the pie. Think about all the rest of the pie that we perform, yep. right? And so people say public schools are failing, they're failing. That's all I've ever heard. They need reform. And yet when you change the rules for some, they're going to perform well because they only have to deal with these rules and their focus is just college. If we're going to have to do all the rest of it, let us do it and be awesome at it. And give us multiple measures. Don't grade us A to F on how well we climb a tree when we're a fish. Don't do that to us. You know, if the if the public money goes to a private school or homeschool, there needs to be accountability with that dollar. You That's know? right. That's right. It's just going to have to happen. So uh, at the end of the day, if 
these vouchers go to homeschools. I can see, I can see this, these little micro schools. You know, we saw some of this in the COVID situation where moms and dads who could, they would hire maybe a former teacher, retired teacher, whatever, and they would pull their, their money and say, Hey, would you, would you teach our kids? Cause we know you're safe and we're trying to keep our kids from being in a school where they could get this virus because everyone was scared about it. Of course. Well, imagine, imagine public dollars going with those kids. Let's say I'm a teacher and I'm tired of whatever I can, I can teach 10 kids. Well, at $10,000 a kid, do the math. How many teachers will we lose to create a micro school with no accountability? And, and I think people might choose that. Think about the number of homeschool folks. I've really studied this, David, that we have out there. We have over 25,000 students in Arkansas that are homeschool. That's the size of our district plus a couple other smaller districts around. Yeah, significant. That's a big population. Our budget's $280 million, and we have 23, well, actually 21-something plus pre-K. Imagine another $280 million coming out of the education dollars immediately to go to every homeschool person, because I don't think they're going to say, no, nah, I don't want the money. Right. Uh, and think about the 25,000 plus private school folks. Now I'm eligible for at least 7,500, if not $10,000 to make it easy. That's another 280 million. So roughly 600 million coming out of the coffers tomorrow when we just cut taxes and are going to cut them more in Arkansas. What do you think is going to happen? We, we're going to go broke. Yeah. We're just, I mean, they're going to have to phase it in if they do it. And you're going to have to have some qualifications or guardrails on it. I just forecast a train wreck coming. Although I have to agree, I want moms and dads and kids to have choice. Right. So it sounds like I'm talking out of both sides of my mouth. Uh, I want them to choose us, just like the other superintendents that you talked to. But we're going to have to provide really awesome opportunities. And when the rules of the game are from 1983 and we can't, change we can't compete that's right that's my message to you i like that and you're going to have a discussion you said after this with um folks in arkansas more about this which i love too well i'm having a lot of discussions my friend so i I like it i mean that's it sounds like throughout your career you've done that you've brought these solutions to the table and you've talked to people and said hey let's do it let's do it and you've had success and i love hearing your your opinion on it and the fact that you have the research and the success to show it's not, it's not by accident. It's through hard work and listening and understanding. Absolutely. Man, it's a tough, I mean, it's a tough road to hoe now. Yeah, it's a it's tough a- thing to do, but there are tons of educators in Arkansas who care. Yeah. And that's, that's where I know that uh, we'll be okay either way because people care about kids mm-hmm. at the mm-hmm. end of the day, when I am done, there will be somebody who takes my place and they'll be just as passionate, if not more, and they'll be just as talented, if not more. That's my job to make sure that happens. That's right. And uh, I'll continue to do that. What a perfect way to wrap it up. I love it. Hey, thank you for your time. Dr. Hey, Cooper. you're a pleasure to talk to. I, I hope you don't have to hit delete, but <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> thank you for joining the Plexus high school leadership podcast series. If you'd like more information on this podcast or Plexus, please visit us at plexus.com forward slash solutions. Thank you.